My wife, Sarah, and I have been married, like I shared with you, almost 14 years now. And we have had, for the first eight years, uh, we had basically the same argument over and over again. And the argument was my wife telling me, Eric, you have a major problem and it is snoring. You snore like awful. And I said, babe, you don't understand. Real men snore. Like, that's just what we do. And she said, no, 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 there's like snoring, and then there's a bear being suffocated. Like, that's what you sound like. Like, you literally sound like you're going to die every night. Go get a sleep study. And for eight years, I resisted and resisted. And then finally, I was like, okay, fine, I'm going to go get a sleep study. So I pull up to this sleep study center in our area at 8 o'clock at night, which is already weird, right, to go to a doctor's office so late. There was no one else in the parking lot. I walk in the doors, it's really dimly lit. I sit in the waiting room, I'm the only one there. A technician comes out and welcomes me and we walk down this long hallway with a bunch of different rooms. It kind of feels like a hospital slash hotel vibe. And so I'm walking down this hallway and then they open this door and I sit in this room and there's a room with a bed where I'm gonna be literally be sleeping all night and they're just gonna be watching me, which is creepy, right? Like. And I mean, that would be creepy if anyone did that, but these people get paid lots of money. So it's just a, but maybe you want to do that. I don't know. So anyways, they're watching me sleep. That's what they're going to be doing. So I sit down on the bed and I remember thinking to myself, I really have to go to the bathroom. Like, especially before I go to bed, I need to make sure I go to the bathroom. And there was a bathroom in the room that I was going to be sleeping in. The door was open. I had not gone in there, but the door was open. And, and so I thought, okay, I've got to make sure I go to the bathroom. And then um, but one thing led to another, and, and the guy and I were just kind of talking, and he's sharing with me about how he's a Christian and how uh, he goes to this church. And, and before I even know it, we're just in this long conversation. I'm sitting on the bed, and he already has me hooked up to everything, okay? Like, there's like a hundred cords running from my body and my head because they're going to monitor me as I'm sleeping. And all of a sudden, it dawns on me, I ain't going to the bathroom tonight. Like, it's just not happening for me. And so already I'm stressed. I'm anxious. I'm thinking, how am I going to fall asleep? I haven't gone to the bathroom. I have all these people, all these cameras watching me and monitors. This is going to be so weird. And also, like, I, I you know, I, I don't know. I just, it was, a, it was a new environment. So right before he leaves, the technician guy, he, he uh, turns off the TV. And then he says, hey, hey before I go, because uh, he knew I was a Christian and a pastor, and, and he was a Christian too. And he said, hey, I just want to ask you a question. Uh, do you believe in ghosts? And you guys, I just got to tell you, the scariest, I, I hate scary movies. The scariest thing we watch in our house is Cocomelon. That's as scary as it gets in our house. We're just not about anything else other than that. And so I'm already on edge, but I respond to him. I say, no, 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 I do not believe in ghosts. In fact, I think that's one of Satan's way of distracting us spiritually, getting us spiritually confused about something over here and instead of fixing our eyes on Christ. So no, I don't believe in ghosts. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, me neither, me neither, me neither. But the last guy who slept in this bed said that in the middle of the night, he woke up and somebody was tickling his feet. And again, I hate scary things. I'm not about it. All of a sudden, my blood pressure is rising. I'm freaking out. And no joke, you guys, he literally does this. He goes, well, good night, and closes the door. And it's just me in this room, and I'm instantly thinking, oh, creepy Ticklefoot dude is in the bathroom, and I haven't gone to the, and I, oh man, you guys, I texted my wife, I was like, I don't think I'm coming home, like this is not going well, and I was freaking out. 
I remember kind of obsessing about some of those questions and, and some of the other questions that he was asking me about faith. He, he had a bunch of questions about Jesus, and, and, and it got me thinking, you know, one of the most important things you can spend your time doing, in fact, the most important thing you can spend your time doing is discovering what is truth. What can you bank your life on? What can you hold tightly to? And tonight, students, in just a few minutes, I have the privilege of sharing with you truth. The ultimate truth. The true story of God's great, unending love for every single one of you. That, that this morning, we, we really left on a cliffhanger. In fact, for some of you, you opened up and shared and, and confessed things that you've been keeping secret for a really long time. And maybe some of you left this morning wondering, well, where do we go from here? Yeah, there's definitely brokenness in me. There's brokenness in the world. I've got sin. Where do we go from here? We discovered this morning that things are not okay, that there is a problem in the world. The problem is sin, and sin lives in me, and I participate in it. That every time I rebel or reject God in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, every time I take advantage of somebody else, I lie, I, I gossip, I lust, every time I cheat, every time I commit a sin that's clearly laid out in Scripture, that I'm experiencing distance from God. And you know, students, God hates sin. He hates it. Do you know why? Because sin hurts you. God hates sin because sin hurts you. Sin hurts your relationship with him, first and foremost. It hurts your relationship with everyone else. But like I ended this morning, sin is too big for you to deal with on your own. Satan is too powerful on your own but not for God. And tonight, we're going to discover together, or maybe rediscover together, the beauty of the gospel. Or in other words, the good news of what God did for you, what God did for me, what God did for us. Let's go to our anchor text, Ephesians chapter 4, as Paul is talking about the ramifications of feudal thinking, how it affects our lives, how, how sin darkens our understanding, it, it hardens our heart, it makes us insensitive to God's spirit. But then Paul turns a corner in verse 20, he says, that, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ. And we're taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. How does that happen? Paul says, you, you, you all have been taught the gospel which enables, enables you only by God's grace to, to let go of the old self and to embrace the new self. That God wants you to be a new creation, to have freedom and forgiveness like you've never known before. But how? How? 
That's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight. You see, Jesus, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He can't just be a good teacher or a healer or a nice guy because he proclaimed, stated on multiple occasions, made it crystal clear that he is God. And so he was either lying to everyone around him or he was out of his mind thinking he was God, but he really wasn't. Or maybe, just maybe, he is Lord. And if he's Lord, you can't dismiss him. You have to decide whether he'll be your Lord. But the question of whether he's Lord or not, we're going to define and we're going to look at tonight. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 to 19, it says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve, his disciples, his closest friends, he took them aside and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, and then check this, to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Essentially, Jesus says, you guys, here's the game plan. Here's what's about to unfold. And if any of you have any questions about who I am and whether I truly am the Messiah, whether I truly am the Savior of the world, whether I truly am Lord and creator of all things, I'm about to prove it to you by accomplishing these four things. Keep your eyes open and let's see what happens. Jesus said he'll be mocked. He'll be flogged. He'll be crucified, and then he said he'll be raised from the dead. And if he is able to accomplish these four things, then there's no question Jesus is Lord. At, at, at this time in Jesus' ministry, it's towards the end of his three years of ministry. As an adult, he has acquired two really powerful enemies. You've got the religious leaders on one side, who hate Jesus because Jesus continues to say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in their interpretation, that's blasphemy. Because they, they really crystal clear can hear Jesus is claiming to be God and they're not okay with that. But he also had some other enemies on this side. The Romans, the government of his day who was offended by Jesus claiming to be God because they believed and they propagated the message that Caesar was God. And so on Thursday night, Jesus has a meal with his disciples and then he goes to a garden to pray. And he takes three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, with him to pray, and he says, guys, I need you to pray right here with me, and Jesus goes a little bit farther, and, and, and the gospel writer, the historical account of the life of Jesus is recorded through Luke. Luke was a doctor, a physician, a medical expert. Luke tells us that as Jesus is praying in this garden, he is so overwhelmed by what he's about to experience that he's sweating drops of blood. He's so overwhelmed by the pain and the agony he's about to experience. But even more than that, he is overwhelmed by the reality that he is about to bear the full weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. So much so that Jesus cries out to his heavenly father. He says, 
Father, if there's any way to take this cup from me, take it, but not my will be done, your will be done. That Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. And in this moment, he's crying out and saying, if there's any other way to save humanity, let's go that way. But not my will, your will. A little while later, Jesus in that same garden is arrested. The religious leaders and the government of that day come together to arrest Jesus and he begins to be mocked, just like he said he would. He's blindfolded. He's spit on. They slap him on the side. They hit him. And they say things like, if you're a prophet, why don't you tell us who hits you? For hours they mock Jesus, the one who created all things, who put the stars in the sky, is being mocked by these men. Eventually Jesus goes to bed that night and and in custody, gets, I imagine, very little sleep, and early that next morning he is woken up. And he's brought before the governor of that part of Israel. His name was Pontius Pilate. And he's brought before that governor. And, and the governor's trying to figure out why is Jesus even arrested, but he can't ignore the people in the crowd that are chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate, the governor, says, okay, crucify him, but before you crucify him, flog him. In our texts, which were written almost 2,000 years ago, in that day, in that culture, to simply say he was flogged, everybody would have known exactly what that looked like. But with 2,000 years of distance between it, many of us have forgotten. Jesus would have been taken into a, a courtyard area where a giant pole was in the center and he was stripped naked and tied to this pole with his back exposed. The crowd formed around him cheering and screaming because this was their entertainment for the weekend. Two guards on either side of Jesus had whips in their hands with nails and rocks and glass at the end of them. And 39 times they would whip Jesus' back one after the other causing his skin and his back to come undone. It required two Roman soldiers because the task was so laborsome and so tiresome that no one individual could do it. And just just think about this. As, As Psalm 139 says, God knits us together in our mother's womb. That The God who knit these people together is now being undone by them. Many people in the first century died simply from this, from flogging, but not Jesus. They untied him and he collapsed to the ground. And then he's forced to carry a giant wooden beam about a mile up to the top of this hill. One of the gospel writers tells us that Jesus was so tired and it was so heavy that that he collapsed and someone from the crowd had to actually finish carrying it for Jesus. His body's going into shock. 
He's experienced such a traumatic, brutal beating and torture. When he gets to the top of the hill, they lay him down across that wooden beam and they feel for the depression in his wrist and they drive a nail through his wrist into the piece of wood. They stretch out his other arm, arm and feel for the depression in his wrist and drive another nail through that arm and that piece of wood and then they put one foot over the other and drive a nail through both feet and into the final piece of wood and then they hoist Jesus up and he has begun what he said would happen, crucifixion. The Romans had perfected crucifixion. It was for the worst of criminals. It was for the terrorists. It was for the people that Rome wanted to make it crystal clear to the whole city, if you commit crimes like these people committed, this is what's going to happen to you. But the thing about crucifixion is you didn't die from blood loss. You died from suffocation, from not being able to breathe anymore. The Gospel of Mark says that Jesus was up there for six hours. He, he pushes on his feet to take a breath, causing excruciating pain in his feet. And then he exhales, causing excruciating pain in his wrists. And for six hours, experiencing excruciating pain, just trying to take a breath. And I use that word excruciating intentionally because the English word excruciating comes from the Latin word excruciare, which literally means out of crucifixion. And for six hours, as Jesus is being humiliated, mocked, he'll say things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. His mom was close enough to witness this whole thing and recognizing that she would have no one to take care of her. He looked to his disciple, John, and he said, John, make sure you take care of my mom. Mom, John's going to take care of you. This Jesus who went around healing and preaching the good news who interacted with a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, ostracized from her community, and he called her daughter, words she had not heard for over a decade, is now dying slowly on the cross. And then the Gospel of John tells us that in the sixth hour, Jesus cries out, it is finished. And then he breathes his last and he dies. What did he mean by it is finished? He meant sin having a hold on your life. It's finished. Satan winning the war of your life. It's finished. The power of death and sin to distance us from God, it's been paid for, it's been finished. That when Jesus said, it is finished, he was proclaiming, you are forgiven through his sacrifice. But, but maybe you're hearing this and you're like, I, I, don't, I just don't fully understand it yet. Let me, I, I need some help illustrating this. Where's my friend Will? Will, where are you at, bro? Jump on up here, guys. Can you give Will a round of applause? All right, Will, question for you. Have you ever been handcuffed before? No. 
No better place than church camp. This is great. Okay, come here. Let me see your hand real quick. All right. Okay, this is important. The problem in 2023 is when we think of sin, we think, oh, it's a bad decision. It's that thing that I did last weekend. It's that thing nobody found out about. Man, I'm so glad that's in my rearview mirror. I'm so glad that's in my past. But God's word, which is true, warns us and teaches us that that's not how sin works. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. In other places, it talks about we are enslaved to our sins, that we are literally slaves to sin apart from Christ. And the reality is, is our baggage, our luggage, our sin, it's a part of us. It's handcuffed to us. We are enslaved to it, and there's nothing we can do to get rid of it on our own. But we try. You know what we do? The first thing we try to do, Will, is we try to hide our sin from others. We try to convince other people that we're perfect through the accounts we create, through the filters we put on, through the answers to the questions we're asked. We try to put on a front like everything's okay. Here's what I want you to do, Will. If this is your sin, I want you to try to hide it from all these people right here. You got to stay right here, Will. There we go. Okay, all right. That's, that's pretty good. That's, pre that's pretty good, Will. I got to be honest. I want to ask you a question. Raise your hand if you can still see sin, Will's sin. That's a lot of hands, Will. You tried, though, bro. You tried. That's really creative. That's cool. So the reality is hiding your sin from others, it doesn't work. The second thing we try to do is we try to run from our sin. We create a new account. We switch schools. We switch youth groups. We switch friends. We try to run as far away from it. Sometimes we even run to church not to experience the grace and the forgiveness of God through his people, but we try to run to church as a way of running away from our sins so that we can earn God's love. And so, Will, what I want you to do just on this little part of the stage, I want you to try to run from your sin. Run from your sin, brother. Run from your sin. Well, don't break it. Run from your sin. Here we go. Okay. Now, you guys, that was pretty good. Will, Will he, he's a fast runner. I mean, you're a pretty good runner, I can tell. But you saw what I saw. Everywhere Will went, his sin went with him. And students, this is your condition. This is my condition apart from Jesus Christ. And so why is it such a big deal that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross? Because Jesus was perfect and sinless he was 100% God, 100% human. He was the only one qualified to take our sin. And he did that because he loves you. Because your sin hurts your relationship with God. It hurts your relationships with others. It creates distance. And God wants you to be free. God wants you to be forgiven. And so what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago was for all of humanity, meaning not just your neighbor, but for you. And what he did is he said, I'm going to do for you something that your boyfriend or girlfriend could never do for you. I'm going to do something for you that your future bank account could never do for you. I'm going to do something for you that your Ivy League school could never do for you. I'm going to do something for you that that American dream could never do for you. I'm going to do something for you that your perfect GPA could never do for you. I am going to give you the gift of forgiveness by taking your sin. And giving you freedom. Can you guys give it up for Will? Thanks, Will.
You see, you guys, God, God prioritized your life over his own. That Jesus Christ held nothing back to win you back. But here's the deal. This is only the third thing that Jesus said was going to happen. He said, I'm going to be mocked. It happened. He said, I'm going to be flogged. It happened. He said, I'm going to be crucified. It happened. But then he threw this one in there. He said, and to prove without a shadow of a doubt that I am who I said I am, that you could trust me with your life. Jesus said, and on the third day, I will come back to life. I will rise from the dead. Can we just admit in this room, that's crazy? That's wild to claim that? And the apostle Paul, who we've been reading from, who wrote Ephesians, he doubles down on this. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 14 says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Verse 17, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Students, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he didn't die for your sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you are still stuck in your sins. Good luck trying to figure out what to do with it. But if Jesus rose from the dead, if he came back to life, if that actually happened, then when Jesus says that you have eternal life, you can believe it. That when Jesus, through his word, says you're forgiven, you can believe it. That when you read the scriptures and they tell the story of Christ and what he has done on our behalf and what it means to live for him, we can bank our whole lives on it because Jesus actually rose from the dead. But why in the world would any of you incredibly smart students believe that? Here's at least two reasons. And if you're looking for more, read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul gives at least four reasons. Here's two. First thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the disciples, to the 12 who followed him. Why is that significant? Here's why. Because on Friday, when Jesus was crucified, none of his disciples died with him. Oh, they loved him, they appreciated him, they witnessed him doing miracles. I mean, it was crazy, but none of them were willing to die with Jesus. But then on Sunday, they saw with their own eyes that Jesus who died on the cross was back from the dead. He was awake, alive, back from the dead. And they saw it with their own eyes. And the reason I believe that they saw it with their own eyes is because these disciples went on to tell the whole world that Jesus rose from the dead and it cost them their lives. One of them was beheaded. One of them was crucified upside down. One of them was boiled in oil. One of them was banished to a far country. And all but one of them was murdered. Not because they had walked with Jesus, but because they couldn't stop and they wouldn't stop telling the world, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. How do you explain that? How do you explain that a group of guys on Friday are saying, we love you, Jesus, but we're not willing to die for you. Come Sunday, their whole lives have been turned upside down and they're not only willing to give up their lives, but they do. The only logical conclusion is they actually saw Jesus come back. 
but maybe an even more convincing piece of evidence. The Apostle Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James. The James he's referring to is the brother of Jesus, James, who in the Gospels, the historical accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the siblings of Jesus. They are skeptical at best about their brother. They doubt it. They think he's a little crazy. They are uncertain about all the things that he is talking about. But then James sees his own brother come back from the dead. And it so powerfully transforms his life that James becomes the leader of the church that meets in Jerusalem. He ends up writing a letter that shows up in the pages of our scriptures in the New Testament. And he opens that letter saying, I, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus. He didn't say, hey, it's me, it's James, I'm, I'm the brother of Jesus, no big deal. No, he says, I, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus. During a transition of power, James was persecuted so heavily that he was thrown off a ledge and he fell to the ground and a mob surrounded him and they beat him literally until he died. And they did not beat him because he was the brother of Jesus. They beat him because he couldn't stop and he wouldn't stop telling every single person, my brother is my Lord. My brother rose from the dead. My brother is the only way to be right with God. Raise your hand if you have a sibling. Raise your hand if you have a sibling. How hard would it be to convince them you were God? How would you do that? And yet here's James, the brother of Jesus, who saw his brother come back from the dead. And he willingly gave up his life because Jesus rose. But now the question is to you. What will you do with this good news? What will you do with the evidence for the resurrection? In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world. It doesn't say that God hated the world. It doesn't say that God's indifferent to the world. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him. And this isn't just like a belief in your brain. This is like a trusting with your life. Like your full weight is leaning on this truth. That whoever believes in him, trusts in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. Satan wants you to think, Life here, the 80 or so years you may get, is all there is. God's true word tells us, oh no, there's eternity. And the way in which you can experience eternity with God is through Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, this is the John who was boiled in oil because he followed Jesus. He was so captivated by the love of God that, that he wrote these words in 1, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, 
He, talking about Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This might be one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Look at that. It says, if we confess our sins. Did you catch this? This is an upside-down paradigm. This doesn't even make sense to me. But what I read here is that if we will bring Jesus the worst of ourselves, he will give us the best of himself. That if you'll bring Jesus your sin and your brokenness and your confession, that he says he will be faithful, that means he's not going to go anywhere. He says he's just, that means he will take care of sin in your life. It's paid for through him on the cross. That he will forgive you, I mean, he's not going to rub it back in your face, all the things that you've done. And he is committed to purifying you. He's in it for the long haul with you. And then Paul said in Romans 10, 9, if we confess, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to invite every student to close their eyes right now. And I think every single person in this room has a next step to take in response to the truth of God's word as we've talked about tonight. The question is, which group are you in? There's some of you who have never begun a relationship with Jesus before. You, this is all brand new to you that, that Jesus Christ loved you enough to die on the cross and rise from the dead to absorb your sin, to deal with it so that you could be forgiven and free. There's some of you here who you've known this message, but you have been walking far from God and you recognize you were brought up to camp so that God could remind you again he is worth all of your attention. There's some of you here tonight who you, there's some big questions in your mind that are, it's keeping you from saying yes to Jesus. It's keeping you from taking that next step that, that maybe it's an intellectual decision, an intellectual question. Maybe it's, man, how do I reconcile some of the things I'm learning at home with the Bible? Maybe it's an emotional question. Maybe you've gone through something painful and you're trying to figure out how does that reconcile with a good, loving God? And then there's a fourth group tonight. There's some of you here who you know all weekend God has been putting something on your heart. He's been whispering to you. Maybe it's been happening even longer than camp. He's been whispering to you, telling you, calling you to do something brave, something courageous, to take a big step of faith that honestly is terrifying to you. And that might be telling somebody close to you the gospel and what Christ has done in your life. Maybe for some of you, it's starting a Bible club at your school. Maybe for some of you, you feel like he's calling you into ministry or to be a missionary locally or globally or, or, or to tell your parents about God or to share with the, the gospel with your soccer team. I don't know what it is for you, but, but you know that God has been just knocking at the heart, at the door of your heart, telling you, I want you to do this. I want you to trust me. And you've been scared out of your mind, but the reason you're here this weekend is to make that commitment. I don't know which group you're in, but you do. 
And I want to invite you right now to respond with every eye closed. If you're in this room right now and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus, you've never said yes to him, you've never surrendered your life to him and made him the Lord of your life, you may have been going to church for a really long time. You may be a pastor's kid. You may be surrounded by other Christians, but you're discovering that your faith can't be based on other people's faith. That this is between you and God. And so tonight, if you're in this room and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus, and you want to receive his forgiveness for the first time, you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time, right now I want you to raise your hand as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. I want you to go ahead and raise your hand. Jesus, I thank you for these hands that are raised. I thank you for these decisions that are being made, that these students are proclaiming, Jesus, you, you are who you said you are. And I receive your forgiveness. You can put your hands down with your eyes still closed. For those of you that are in this room, that you, you know the gospel, you know the story of Jesus, but you have not been living it out but you recognize that you you came up to camp, whether you knew it or not, to get right with God. And you want to repent. You want to turn from those old things and fix your eyes on Jesus again. Would you raise your hand right now as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm coming back. God, I thank you for these hands and these students, these decisions that are being made to remake you the Lord of their lives. God, I pray they would continue to walk in faithfulness, trusting you, obeying you, and to truly leave behind that old life. You can put your hands down. With every eye closed, there's some of you here tonight who there's still some questions you have. There's still some things that you're wrestling through, but you want to make a commitment that you are going to seek answers because your great questions deserve great answers. And you're ready to say, I'm not going to let those questions hold me back from pursuing the truth of who God is. And so if tonight that's you, if you're saying, I am going to ask these questions and I'm going to lean in and I'm going to explore this, Jesus, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you? God, I thank you for these students that are bold enough and courageous enough to say, I don't know about you yet, Jesus, but I'm willing to explore. I'm willing to take a next step. I'm willing to ask some questions. I pray, God, that you would meet every single one of these students right where they're at, that you would show up in a powerful way, that you would make yourself evident and clear to them, and that soon, Lord, they would take that saving step of faith to trust you with their lives. And lastly, there's some of you here tonight who you know that God is calling you to something and it's terrifying to you and you've been wanting to avoid it but he's been knocking and it's getting louder and louder and you are ready to say yes to that calling God has put on your life. If that's you and you know who you are, would you raise your hand as a way of saying, Jesus, I am going to say yes to the thing that you are calling me to do. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the boldness of these students. 
And I ask, God, that you would help them to follow through with the commitment that they are making in their hearts right now to you. That the, the calling you've put on their life, that big, bold step of faith, would you help them to make it, not in their own courage and their own strength, but in yours and yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, hey, before we jump back into worship with every eye open, something incredible happened in this space. That many of you raised your hands making some kind of decision tonight. And scripture says that all of heaven is celebrating and we want to celebrate with you. And there's no such thing as an only child in the family of God. That you've got brothers and sisters who want to encourage you, want to welcome you back, want to celebrate with you. And so I'm going to ask you to do something bold. That as I call out your group, I'm going to invite you to stand up. And the rest of us are going to celebrate with all of heaven, and we want to encourage you and hold you accountable. And so if you were in that first group, if you made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time, I want you to stand up on the count of three. One, two, three. You can have a seat. If you were in that second group, if you said, I'm coming home, I want you to stand up on the count of three. One, two, three. It's awesome. You can have a seat. If you were in that brave and courageous group of three that said, you know what, I've got some really big questions, but I'm committing to leaning in, would you stand up on the count of three? One, two, three. Awesome. And lastly, for those of you that have been sensing God is calling you to take a bold step of faith and you are committing to that today and as we go back down the mountain, would you stand up on the count of three? One, two, three. All right, you can be seated. Let me pray for us as we wrap up. Heavenly Father, thank you for doing what only you can do. Thank you for saving people tonight. Thank you for calling people to return home. Thank you for challenging and inviting some to take a bold step to ask those questions. And God, thank you for those students who said enough is enough. I'm gonna say yes to the thing Jesus is calling me to. Would you cement these decisions in our hearts? Would you help us to live our lives for you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.